Welcome to another edition of What the Cross Means to Me, devotional program. This is your host, Rob Holt, coming to you from Life Radio. It is good to be with you as we contemplate fresh perspectives on the meaning of the cross. I am not a theologian, just a photographer who's been at it over 30 years. But if a picture tells a thousand words, then yes, I guess you can say I preach to the glory of our Creator by capturing and sharing what the Creator has created. My mission is to share the gospel through my imagery, spoken word, and the written word. This program fulfills the spoken part, and the imagery utilized for this devotional are of a singular cross on a lonely hill shot over a two-year period. The written word for this program is from a book I published about that cross collection. It matches 30 cross images with 30 original essays from a wide spectrum of Christian leaders sharing their insights on the cross. The book shares the same name as this program, What the Cross Means to Me. Each week, we read one of the essays and ponder the wider meaning of the cross through the lens of Scripture. This week's devotional is the 70th and last devotional in this series of excerpts from What the Cross Means to Me book. The journey has been a blessing for me, and I pray for you as well. And this devotional is based on an excerpt from the writings found in The Imitation of Christ, penned by Thomas A. Kempis, who was a German monk who became ordained as a priest in 1413. He was described as kind and affable towards all, especially the sorrowful and the afflicted, constantly engaged in his favorite occupations of reading, writing, or prayer. In time of recreation, for the most part silent and recollected, finding it difficult even to express an opinion on matters of mundane interest, but pouring out a ready torrent of eloquence when the conversation turned on God or concerns of the soul. Remarkable for its simple language and style, it emphasizes the spiritual rather than the materialistic life, affirms the rewards of being Christ-centered, and supports communion as a means to strengthen faith. His writings offer possibly the best representation of the Dovitio Moderna, the modern devotion, that made religion intelligible, practical, and understood for the modern attitude arising out of the Netherlands and northern Germany towards the end of the 14th century. Keep in mind that Kempis stresses asceticism rather than mysticism and moderate, not extreme, austerity which too often become a temptation to show off, or, for lack of a better phrase, one's superior spiritual walk, too easily susceptible to prideful or even arrogance to those not at a certain level of austerity. In other words, Thomas stressed a lifestyle characterized by abstinence from pleasures rather than the practice of religious ecstasies, meaning religious habits or routines or rituals. There's a poem I like 
that encapsulates this perspective by Andrew Murray, which states, He took my cross for his own. I must take his cross as my own. I must be crucified with him. It is as I abide daily, deeply, in Jesus the Crucified One, that I shall taste the sweetness of his love, the power of his life, and the completeness of his salvation. Now the cross image accompanying this devotional is entitled The Foreshadow, which is shot from the earliest days of shooting this cross collection. I'm shooting the cross from far enough back that you get a great view of the surrounding area and the eastern hills, which is completely covered in amber-colored grass. You know, that three-feet-high type of grass you normally see in late summer. And not just the cross, not just grass around the cross, but as far as the eye could see, all the way until you get to the horizon line of the sky, possibly a 20-mile view. But at the horizon line of the sky is when you see a gradation of brownish, smoggy haze turn to a lighter amber haze, and then into a light blue haze, and then a normal deep blue sky. I am shooting from the back of the pickup that I used to have, and thus was high enough to see beyond and past the little bluff that the cross was planted on. And since the time of this summer day, which was about 6 p.m., the angle of the sun was casting a very long and distinct shadow behind it, a long shadow of the cross behind the cross. And I guess the name then is a bit of a misnomer, as I am not sure what the antonym of the word foreshadow might be, Instead, maybe a pre-shadow or is it an aft-shadow because the, cro- the shadow is behind the cross. Regardless, it is a pretty cool shadow extending from the base and away from the cross. And the real reason for naming the foreshadow, well, when naming an image, sometimes I put thought and prayer into it and sometimes the name is immediately inspired inside me. In this case, the word foreshadow was what I immediately felt the name should be when I first looked at the image most obviously because there is a shadow cross. But sometimes what seems like a hunch is really inspiration. Why? Because the concept of foreshadowing is in the gospel story and more, even the story of humankind. We read in Romans 5.13, To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is a foreshadow of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of one one man, how much more did God's grace... And the gift that came by the grace of one man, Jesus Christ, overflowed to the many. What does this mean? The Apostle Paul was trying to say that there can be no sin without a law to transgress against. Yet, there was a few millennia after Adam sinned where there was no law. The law Paul is referring to was drafted by Moses in the Sinai Desert after leading the Hebrews out of Egypt preparing them to cross over the Jordan into the Promised Land, the area that would be known as Israel. And yet, the death referred to 
from the Eden curse, ruled mankind since Adam, who, as St. Paul claims, was a foreshadowing of the Messiah, the Christ, which is why Jesus is referred to as the second Adam. St. Paul elaborated on this perception in Hebrews 10 when he says, The law is only a foreshadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices, repeat endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt it guilty for their sins. But these sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then he said, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. That is the end of Hebrews 10, 1-7. Let's look at this. First he said, Sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were pleased with. Then he said, Here I am. I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Christ once for all. St. Paul is saying that the mechanism under Hebrew law for covering sins was something that had to be continually repeated as it only applied to what had just led up to it. And yet, Jesus claims that he is that sacrificial lamb covering once for all even mistakes and sins yet to be committed. This is why we must die to ourselves and carry our own cross daily. With that background, this image in mind, we see how it ties in with today's devotional, The Imitation of Christ. In the annals of Christianity, The Imitation of Christ is widely considered to be the second most read book in the world, next to the Bible. Its influence on subsequent religious literature to the present cannot be overstated. The premise that thoughts, books, and science of an earlier time is inherently inferior to that of the present just because it is older was dubbed chronological snobbery by the famous Owen Barfield. In fact, when it comes to books, C.S. Lewis said that it is a good rule of thumb that for every new book we read, we should purposely engage in reading an old book. Way before there was Oswald Chambers, my utmost for his highest, or other noted devotional writers, a Christian disciple in the 1400s who really longed to follow Christ would naturally read The Imitation of Christ, which was said to have been written to other monks in the pre-Reformation times. He wrote The Imitation of Christ, the first handwritten manuscript around 1427. Its popularity was immediate, printed 745 times before 1650. Apart from the Bible, no book had been translated into more languages than The Imitation of Christ. By 1779, there was at least 1,800 editions and translations. John Wesley translated a version in the 1700s. His, the text is divided into four books, which provide detailed spiritual instructions. 
helpful counsels on the spiritual life, directives for the interior life, on interior consolation, and on the Blessed Sacrament. The approach taken in the imitation is characterized by its emphasis on the interior life and withdrawal from the world. The book places a high level of emphasis to the devotion of the Eucharist, which we refer to as communion, as a key element of spiritual life. If you like Oswald Chambers' ability to capture profound truths in compact statements, consider these statements by Kempis. Quote, We are all frail, but you should think of no one being more frail than yourself. If you desire to benefit from the scriptures, read with humility, simplicity, and faithfulness. Never desire to become known as a Bible scholar. True peace of heart, therefore, is gotten by resisting our passions, not by obeying them. There is no peace of heart in a carnal person, nor the person that is addicted to outward things. But there is peace of heart in a spiritual and devout person. Yet we must be watchful, especially in the beginning of temptation, for the enemy is more easily overcome in the beginning if he is not allowed to enter the door of our hearts, but is resisted outside the gate at his first knock. When he is not resisted, little by little, he gets complete entrance. Another one is, the more time you spend in your secret place, the more you will like it, and the less time you will spend there, you will loathe it. It has been said that Thomas used or alluded to more than a thousand scriptures in the imitation. Often his words read like the Proverbs. His work, therefore, should be read in short segments, allowing time for reflection and meditation. He was often reported as saying when excusing himself, My brethren, he would say, I must go. Someone is waiting to converse with me in my cell. Wait, what does that mean? Was he in jail? No, during those days, monks referred to their quarters, or their room, that they meditated in as their cell, a root word for celestial, a place where heaven meets earth. Now let me touch on a few chapters, starting with the first chapter, imitating Christ and despising all vanities on earth. Quote, He who follows me walks not in darkness, says the Lord, John 8.12. By these words of Christ, we are advised to imitate his life and habits. If we wish to be truly enlightened and free from all blindness of heart, let our chief effort, therefore, be to study the life of Jesus Christ. The teaching of Christ is more excellent than all the advice of the saints, and he who has his spirit will find it in hidden manna. Now, there are many who hear the gospel often, but care for it little because they have not the Spirit of Christ. Yet whoever wishes to understand fully the words of Christ must try to pattern his whole life on that of Christ. We are called, regardless of our state in life, whether it be married, consecrated, or single, to be other Christs in this world. It is not what we do or do not achieve on this temporal level but the quality of our love, service, and being that is so often seen by God alone. Nevertheless, on this tempestuous sea of life, we need the example of witnesses to whom we can look and upon whom we can pattern our own choices. 
Some witnesses may have a great appeal, others less, but God can make all speak to us if we do but pray and endeavor to be open. Scripture should be our prime spiritual food, but also very praiseworthy are those writings and treatises passed down to us from generation to generation for our edification. It is a part of what we call sacred tradition in the church. Unquote. Wow. Let us ponder that a little more. In the latter part of the first chapter of the Imitation of Christ, he, he touches on this, quote, What good does it do to speak learnedly about the Trinity if, lacking humility, you displease the Trinity? Indeed, it is not learning that makes a man holy and just, but a virtuous life that makes him pleasing to God. I would rather feel contrition than to know how to define it. For what would it profit us to know the whole Bible by heart and the principles of all the philosophers if we live without grace and the love of God? Vanity of vanities, and all is vanity, except to love God and serve him alone. Learning clearly has an important place in our lives. God gave us an intellect to use for his glory. Unfortunately, so much of our learning is both abused and misled. We look at the world about us and see the evil ends to which learning has been twisted and manipulated, and with what tragic consequences. Such brilliance culminating in such tragedy. They can quote chapter and verse in the Bible, but are unwilling to put God's word into practice. Unquote. In another section he says, Not everyone can be learned. God knows this. He apportions his gifts as he wills. But everyone can be humble, and it is the humble who are heard by God. When humility comes, the deeper realization of our need of God and his grace. The learned, the proud, and the arrogant have ever been at odds with God. Quote, I thank you, Father, that you have kept these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to the little ones. Unquote. St. Matthew 11.25 It is not in virtue of our knowing but in virtue of our loving that God reveals his secrets. Did not scripture say that Mary kept all these things in her heart, not in her head? Empty your head and open your heart if you would know God. Unquote. And in chapter 2 we find this, Quote, This is the greatest wisdom, to seek the kingdom of heaven through contempt of this world. It is vanity, therefore, to seek and trust in riches that perish. It is also vanity to court honor and to be puffed up with pride. It is vanity to follow the lust of the body and desire things for which severe punishment must later come. It is vanity to wish for a long life and to care little about a well-spent life. It is vanity to be concerned with the present only and not to make provisions for things to come. It is vanity to love what passes quickly and not look ahead where eternal joy abides. Remember the proverb, the eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. Ecclesiastes 1.8 try, try moreover to turn your heart from the love of things visible and bring yourself to things invisible. For they who follow their own evil passions stain their consciousness and lose the grace of God. 
God has made all things good. All things flow out and from his goodness. The contempt of the world expressed here is to be understood in the spirit of St. Paul, who tells us that, by comparison to the things of God, everything else is simply trash. The things of God and the things of this world are incomparable. In light of this immense disparity, we must set the priority of our heart upon God and his kingdom. Everything else is destined to ruin. All things will pass. We see this so clearly when we begin to grasp how quickly our lives are passing. Vanity is the state of pointlessness or futility. And so it is vanity to set all our hopes and to invest all of our trust upon the things of this present world. It is a sobering reality that we can lose virtually all our worldly goods overnight, as many have, and even our health. We must come to understand that it is the quality of our love that matters, how we love that matters, and how we serve others that matters. In focusing, in focusing upon God and others, we lose focus on ourselves. The human senses are never satisfied, nor can they ever be. We never learn the vanity of it all, the inherent futility, because we're too busy squandering our lives on ourselves. For the Christian, then as now, it is quite the opposite. We come to realize that all God created is intended as sacrament that will lead us to him and not to ourselves, unquote. Wow. <sighs> that last section reminds me of the words of St. Clair and stylized in a John Michael Talbot song called A Laudable Exchange, quote, O wondrous exchange to exchange the things of time for those of eternity. The theologian John, Jonathan Edwards agreed that humans are rational, and he saw that they are created that way by God. He also saw that people are naturally capable of reasoning in arguments for God's existence. Edwards believed that people can discern some truths about God by reason and nature. Yet a spiritual conversion experience can also convince a person about the true nature of God. A conversion involves the Spirit of God birthing or instilling spiritual faith in a person's heart and spirit. This new birth, Edwards asserts in his Doctrine of Original Sin, is indicated in John 3, 3-6, where Jesus tells the Pharisee Nicodemus, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Unquote. Being spiritually reborn or regenerated by God, Edwards explains, based on Romans 2, 28 and 29, involves an internal change of heart, not just an re external religion. However, once a person is forgiven by Jesus, does this mean the new believer is flowing in a full spiritual awakening? For yes. I mean, I would say for some, yes. It happened to my mom. And it happened for Saul, who at that time was a young and fervent Pharisee persecuting the early church. He was visited by Jesus himself as visited as light. Jesus appeared as light on the road to Damascus. So much so that 
Saul was temporarily blinded. But in that exchange with Jesus, Saul was completely transformed to the point of a name change to Paul. My mother told me that when she, while in the grips of heroin addiction and an addiction to cigarettes, asked Jesus to change her. And when he did, she felt Jesus fill fill her heart with his light and love. In both cases, they were fully transformed. Now, if you choose to die to yourself, even and especially in the toughest times, you will likely rise with Christ, allowing you to share in the supernatural power that woke Jesus from the dead. You can be fully awake, immersed in the light of dawn, while in the middle of even the darkest of dark nights. Remember, darkness is not the opposite of light. It is the absence of light. Therefore, let the light of Christ keep you in perfect peace. And not only for yourself, but to reflect this light and love to those in need of hope. Not only will you be awakened and renewed, but also acutely aware of how to learn from what God is bringing you through and through you. And with each situation, we trust God to grow through. Our faith and character is strengthened. When the situations of life begin to shake your footing, your foundation, and even your faith, then return to the cross of Christ. And I find it appropriate that no matter what changes and challenges we face in our lives, in society, and in human history, or the telling or reshaping of it, the story, the purpose, and the impact of the cross stays the same. While everything around the cross, everything in our life, are in flux, constantly changing, the cross never moves, and it will not be moved while the tectonic plates of our life keep shifting. The bedrock of Golgotha is sure, steadfast, and sanctified. When the events in your life begin to shake your footing, your foundation, and even your faith, then return to the cross. Meditate on the message of the cross and the sacrifice thereon. As we are closing out this series with this devotional, let me leave you with these thoughts. When someone asks, what is it about photography that I love? My answer is that the imagery creation process allows me the ability to transmit a feeling. On that ridge, shooting that cross, I found that by focusing on the cross of Christ and the message of the cross of Christ, I was allowing Jesus to focus on me. I experienced profound emotions of acceptance, forgiveness, awe, gratitude, wonderment, peace, and unconditional love. My intention is and has been to transmit some of these perceptions, epiphanies, and emotions through this series and through the images and devotionals. It is not about how the image of the cross looks to the physical eye. It is what I felt while capturing and contemplating the message of the cross that matters, feelings that are amplified as I share them. In a world of constant chaos, it is the protection, purpose, and peace of the cross that never changes. If you are a Christian, have you been living in this perspective? If not, I suggest you meditate on clinging to the cross as you die to yourself and imitate Christ, knowing that the, that the truth and joy of the gospel is that you are a forgiven person. Go, be that person, sharing that joy with others who need it. Today, if you are not a Christian yet, I suggest you consider accepting 
the incredible sacrifice Jesus made for you, contemplating what Jesus did for you. Read the crucifixion accounts in the Bible and consider asking God to refine your soul and heal your heart. Ask Jesus to walk with you and fill you with his love and joy today. And with that, go in grace and may God keep you in his perfect peace. Thanks for listening to What the Cross Means to Me devotional program here on Life Radio. If you'd like to view the image discussed in this essay's image, The Foreshadow, along with my other perspirations, then check out Rob Holton Spires and Verspiration, singular, on Instagram. And if you'd like to learn more about my cross products or hear other cross podcasts, then log on to robbieholt.com and remember that support for what the cross means to me comes from the generous donations from people like you to help this ministry share the gospel through imagery please make a donation at robbieholt.com that is r-o-b-b-y-h-o-l-t dot com